The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. China's outgoing premier, Li Keqiang, speaking earlier this week, saying that the task of maintaining employment stability is challenging and that there are many risks and hidden dangers in the real estate market. Weaknesses in small and medium-sized financial institutions have also been exposed, and he thinks there are still many institutional barriers hindering development. These rather stark views were laid out as the country revealed its economic growth forecasts for the year ahead, how the world's second largest economy will achieve that growth, and the implications of dramatic regulatory reform are the focus of this week's Views Room. Welcome back to The Views Room, the podcast from Reuters Breaking Views, where columnists from around the world talk about the big stories of the week. I'm your host, Amy Donlan, coming to you from London. China has emerged from lockdown and is now setting out some financial forecasts for what we can expect from the economy this year. Here to speak to me about it is our economics editor in China, which is Pete Sweeney and Yawen Chen, who both have been covering China extensively, all sorts of things around the property market, the lockdowns themselves and supply chains and all of the interesting things that, that our readers and listeners are very interested in. So, Pete, I'll start with you. Could you just set the context a little bit here as to what 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 has happened this week? What what has China set out in terms of its sort of economic ambitions? Uh, hi, I mean, yeah. So the the main thing, the first headline that everybody looks for every year, there's these annual two meetings, two sessions that happen, and the government kind of lays out a lot of its plans for the upcoming year, um, include like soft stuff like strategy and and kind of soft goals, as well as very specific targets for. Um, you know, fiscal deficits. And the big one is the GDP growth target. Now, obviously, China going through the pandemic has experienced a bit of uh, economic volatility, to put it mildly. Um, Last year, it grew at its slowest rate in decades, came through at like 3%. It missed its growth target. It had aimed for around 5.5%. And it didn't even get close to that, despite being, keeping in mind that in the past, it was very specific. It would say we were going to grow at 6.5%. And they would always land that number like quite precisely, but they fuzzed it up a bit. And even, even that wasn't enough to keep them from a big miss last year. Um, and that was because of, you know, they had a massive COVID outbreak. They tried to get control of it through these harsh lockdowns. Um, they also had a b- beginning of a, of a major real estate crisis, which was kind of self-inflicted. Both of these policies, um, the crackdown on real estate kind of pushed down prices and caused a bit of a debt problem. As, as it does in other economies, messing with property markets is always kind of dangerous. And then the uh, the, the pandemic policy contributed to that. So uh, a lot of people thought, well, last year was really bad. Um, you know, as we ease up these restrictions, China gave up on its lockdown policy, kind of abandoned it. We will get like this boom in revenge spending that we've seen in other economies, you know, to the extent that some people were worried about you know, inflationary pressure. Um, so there, everybody was watching, like, what's the GDP target going to be? Because the GDP target is a way for the center to communicate to local government officials, like, basically how hard they need to push to generate growth. And it was pretty soft. They came up with around 
Um, that's the lowest in, in quite some time officially because they've been growing at double digits for most of the time that I, when I arrived in China. And so that's conservative. So people who are looking for a sign that there's going to be big bang stimulus, there's going to be a bunch of investment driven or consumption coupons or handouts like you saw in the United States are pretty disappointed. They've got a bunch of major impediments to growth. It's going to be very difficult for them to do these things. So there's a reason for the conservatism. And then, yes, yeah, so, yeah, well, I'll, I'll just switch to you. I mean, these these challenges, which you've, you've written quite a lot about, I mean, property is one. Um, could you talk us through a little bit about what has been going on in the housing market and the property market, I suppose, in general in China, and maybe some of the other challenges that, that maybe could even make this 5% target difficult to achieve. Sure, Amy. Um, so I'll just give you a little bit of background. So ever since late last year, China's been meaningfully easing on their crackdown on real estate um, technology and all the other sectors um, in order to really boost private confidence, because I think now the government is realizing that private consumption is something that they really need to focus on in order to boost the economy. You know, the old infrastructure playbook has not really been working well, partly because the local governments have accumulated a lot of debt. Actually, a lot of the special bonds that was issued last year was used to pay off, you know, interest on 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 the past investments. Um, so there has, I think there there has been a consensus now by this moment in China. Just depending on government spending, it is going to be very difficult for a meaningful recovery. Um, now, but just on real estate, I I still think that because of COVID, you know, three years of depressed, you know, income growth, spending and, um, you know, high health care concerns because of all that. I think households are still quite reluctant, even though there were a lot of headlines about excessive savings accumulated throughout the years. Um, the government, unlike in the U.S., has not done much in terms of putting cash into people's pockets. So I think there is a lot of concern regarding, you know, how how much the property market, which has been a long time, being the only place where you see your assets appreciate in value, will will continue to grow. So people are not willing to really put money back there yet. And also, I think home ownership is is very high in China. A lot of people are actually worried about upcoming tax on, you know, like your second or third homes. So it's 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 a really tricky moment, you know, for the government after being rather successfully deflated de- deflating the the bubbles in the market. Okay. And so, Pete, I'll I'll switch to you. You mentioned, obviously, something that happened um, in other countries like America and across Europe was that people had accumulated a lot of savings in lockdown. And then they came out in this revenge spending that you talked about where people went out and they just spent money. They wanted to go to restaurants. They wanted to go to theaters. They wanted to be back living life. That is obviously the sort of that's where I, I guess some people would think China would would head to next, which I would obviously mean a huge amount of consumption again and maybe the sort of inflation that we've seen elsewhere. Is that something that China is talking about? Is that a risk? Is that what investors are thinking? Not so as you'd notice. Inflation in China has been pretty tame. CPI came in like 2% last year. They're aiming for roughly 3% this year. That's not going to set anything on fire. I mean, part of the reason is that, you know, the real estate with real estate demand so tepid, um, demand for steel, glass, you know, all that sort of stuff is is a little bit more suppressed energy as well. So without property, which drives about 25% of economic output pushing hard, you know, that relieves a lot of inflationary pressure. It causes a bunch of other problems, which is namely that uh, consumer confidence, your average Chinese household, I think 70% of their financial assets are captured in property. Um, so when you have prices kind of going down like this, there's a potential psychological wealth effect. 
alongside all the other economic uncertainty um, at present, export demand has been falling quite dramatically. I was looking for it to recover a bit in the first two months of the year, but that didn't happen. Also, domestic demand stayed weak. Imports have been falling as well. I think it's for been five months now, roughly. So none of that is going to feed you know, a bunch of hot inflationary pressure. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, if you're a Chinese saver right now, um, I mean, the Chinese savings rate is, is quite elevated above average. Their disposable incomes have are below average. And so, yeah, they have a bunch of excess savings. I think HSBC estimates that it's like 1 trillion US dollars, roughly. However you define excess. Now, there's different numbers out there, but there's a mountain of money, but it, it might well not move that quickly. And um, there's a lot of signs that this is just de-risking like, for example, um, Chinese households were selling off money they had in like wealth management product products, stuff like that, and going into cash. So it's not looking like there's going to be a sudden, you know, Saturnalia of blowing money at the out on the streets. Um, there's definitely been a recovery, like a bounce from before. Like it, it couldn't have not improved. Obviously, there's more spending on stuff when you're not locked in your house. Um, so, you know, restaurants like Heidi Lau, you know, reported an uptick in revenue. Like there's definitely some good signs, but, you know, is this enough to drive some bonkers revival in China this year? I mean, markets aren't pricing that and, you know, neither, frankly, or Yawen or myself. And I mean, Yawen, the other big, big news this week is quite big regulatory reforms in China. And I'm wondering if you could talk me through basically what has happened in terms of regulatory reform, because we've obviously seen some of this before in China and, and what it means. Sure. So actually, right be before the two sessions kickstarted, President Xi Jinping was talking about like this far-reaching institutional change that's going to come. But I think still kind of surprised everyone that he's creating this new, for example, on the financial sector, he's creating this new like all-encompassing finance watchdog while excluding the securities part. So this watchdog is supposed to absorb the banking and insurance uh, regulator and also part of the functions from the PBOC and the securities supervisor right now. So that was a surprise because, I mean, in 2018, there has been, in the last government reshuffle, there was this merger between the banking and insurance regulator, and there has been noise ever since about the securities regulator will become part of that organization as well. There has been a lot of internal pushback, you know, um, even though the, the, the whole China state machine is seeing us be moving in the same direction, there has been a lot of like internal, whether that be turf wars or, you know, you just, you have overlapping or different objectives and approach. So when, when this happened, I think one big signal sending to the markets is that she and you know, the government in general is not happy about the finance, the, like the sector in general. Like, for example, you've, you've seen signs on a continued crackdown on banker pay and bonuses. I think they're still kind of worried about systemic risks. But at the same time, the, the contradicting part is that there has been this wide um, speculation, I guess, that the government has not been happy about what the central bank has been doing since the since COVID. Like it's seen as being too conservative in monetary easing, crackdown on real estate. Well, it's it's technically engineering, like implementing the crackdown that she wanted. Uh, has been too forceful with those three red lines on the developers. So it's kind of like taking some of the independence that the central bank enjoyed um, back. And so it's widely seen as the, this new consolidation will maybe enable more stimulus to be sent out to the market by rolling back some of the previous 
crackdowns and at the same time, you know, any kind of other crackdowns on other sectors like, you know, uh, banker pay or anything could be even more unexpected and forceful. So taking away the independence of a central bank is uh, even marginally is never seen as a good sign for an economy. Well, keeping in mind, this was never that independent. I mean, we have to qualify that this that at no point did anybody ever say the central bank is independent from the direction of the Communist Party. So it's a question of degree. And yeah, I mean, so for that reason, some people may be like, so what? They, they moved the deck chairs around. This is the second iteration of this, this move to kind of change the regulatory apparatus after 2018. And part of that happened for le- entirely legitimate, not that political reasons, namely that you had this massive stock crash in 2015, and you also had all these asset bubbles that popped up. And t- those both had to do with like some flaws in the regulatory architecture. So one was that because you had completely different Um, watchdogs watching banking versus insurance. You had a bunch of speculators who, like, once the banking regulators caught on to their wheezes, just kind of migrated over to insurance and caused some fairly spectacular blowups. So that argued for kind of integrating oversight. And then you also had this this massive stock market crash, you know, and some changes in the the exchange rate policy that all happened in 2015. And it, it really looked not coordinated. It rattled global markets, like the Chinese regulatory approach to this just looked like a total mess. So they built, you know, they integrated, they created this thing, the China Banking and Insurance Regulatory Commission. They moved stuff around. They created more oversight from the central bank over the whole system. They created these kind of, well, not the central bank exactly, but they, they created committees and everything to kind of keep control of it. Now they're doing it again. You know, so the question is, what is exactly the problem they're trying to solve that the old thing didn't solve? Because they've been arresting central bankers for corruption. You know, they've been, they can flog commercial bankers all they want. Like nothing, they don't need to, I mean, is this overkill for for that? And what I think is interesting is what you see in some of these moves, you know, as also we've written about and kind of flagged, might be positioning the system to better deal with an upcoming wave of severe local government fiscal stress and, and debt stress. For one thing, they've simplified, they've, they've made the, the securities regulator in charge of the enterprise bond market, which is where most of the local governments will issue bonds. And that used to be this kind of awkward mixed thing where they coordinated with the NDRC, which is the economic planner, and it was never a very good structure. And they've simplified that. So one of the issues was you had a lot of regulators um, from you know, financial regulators at ground level, like the county level or like small town or city level, you know, who got a bit too close to their local economies and local officials. And so they're kind of getting blamed for looking the other way, I guess, as, you know, like banks would lend to these crazy projects or like local governments go be, build these roads to know or run up their debts, you know, do all this stuff. And, and what is happening now is that a lot of those local units are either getting closed or they're going to be turned into like centralized teams that are dispatched from the center. So they're tightening central control and kind of removing kind of that over-localized element of the bureaucracy down there. All of this, you know, could come and help them deal with, you know, what is a $9 trillion problem. These governments are $9 trillion in debt. You know, there's huge stress in the offshore market and nobody knows exactly how the government is going to deal with it. And it's definitely going to be a problem for the banks at some point. Yeah, yeah. what I was just going to curious, so if you're an international investor looking at China, how would you interpret all of this? Does this make it more stable to the point that Pete is making about, you know, some of the debt that's building up and there, this might be a simpler way of managing all of that. Is this an encouraging sign if you're an investor thinking about China? And that's a very tough question. I think the purpose of the reforms, obviously from Beijing's point of view, is that they want to make sure there's no dark corners in this system. It's just very, you know, complicated system so that they can identify risk early. But then in terms of implementation, there's 
you know, consolidating everyone into this one giant thing help making the wisest choices? I think that's there's a question mark there. So um, uh, I, I guess the positive part of things is that if the overall direction is right, then you can see very swift implementation without much of a overlapping turf war and, you know, who is dominating who, that kind of back and forth going on, I, I, I assume. Okay. Well, I mean, we should point out we should point out that markets so far just are not excited about this. All the Chinese major stock indexes are down, especially the offshore ones. And before we like, there's another shoe that investors are watching to see a little drop, which is the creation of this new party committee that has been reported and not implemented yet at the top level, which would replace something that was replaced or duplicate or compete with something on the state council. And the concern there is that the the overall financial system is going to become more politicized, more responsive to ideological guidelines or whatever, and less kind of a pragmatic technocratic thing. Um, but we don't have that yet. But obviously investors so far are, are not cheering any of this. Wow. A lot going on. So much to focus on. Thank you so much, Pete. Thanks, Yawen. Thanks, Amy. Thanks, guys. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Thomas Shum in Hong Kong and Pranav Kiran in Bangalore. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on Apple, Megaphone, or wherever you like to listen. Check out our latest views on BreakingViews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at BreakingViews.